Well, it's that season again. I'm not talking about football, even though that's coming up this time of the year, and God only knows what's going to happen with that in the next few months. And I'm not really talking about any other sporting season for that matter, although what I'm about to talk about, some people might consider it to be a sport. I'm talking about as a season for political campaigns and voting. This past Tuesday was the Florida primaries, and at the Lutheran Haven, where I work my full-time job, is uh, we have a fellowship hall, and that's a voting site for that area over there. And there was all kinds of signs littered around my campus. Vote for so-and-so for judge, and vote for so-and-so for city council, and vote for so-and-so for prosecutor. And there was at least, you know, for every one of those categories, at least 10 signs that were stuck out there, you know, and right in front of you, right out in, in your face. And, um, you know, they all had the catchy little slogans and different ways to try to hook you in to obtain your vote. And then, of course, we know what happens in November. That's the biggie. But, you know, political campaigns, they're always right there in your face. And, and they always have something to say to you. And they're always stumping on some social, you know, issue or um, what's going on in the world, some global issue. Who knows? Uh, and I don't know about you, uh, but, but politics give me a headache. Quite honestly, they just give me a headache. And, uh, you know, as I was looking upon this political season with the measure of dread, I thought back to something that happened to me my senior year in high school. Um, it was probably early on in that fall uh, when a representative of our school newspaper came to me and started interviewing me because it was an election year and, or coming up on election year. And she said, what are politics to you? Well, I kind of gave her, you know, a canned answer on that. And she goes, all right, so who's the president? I said, Ronald Reagan. She goes, no, 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 that's not what I meant. You know, who's the president to you? I thought to myself, you mean there's more than one person in the office at the same time? It's Ronald Reagan. She goes, no, 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 What is the president to you? So I gave her some canned answer right out of my seven-period U.S. government book. And she says, no, I want to hear in your own words. What is the president to you? I said, huh, I couldn't answer it. So I'll get back to you on that. And I went home, and I sat down, and I started studying and getting more serious about that question that she had answered me. And I started looking back on past presidents and things in current events and this, that, and the other, and, uh, you know, really studying it. And I thought, and I wrote down several things that day. I wrote down things like, a president should be somebody that I put my trust and confidence in to govern this great nation that gives me these liberties that I have. A president should be somebody that has, has the best interests of society as a whole and will treat everybody fairly and equitably. And there was other things I wrote down that day, and I still think of those things today, even amidst this political season that we're in. But I'm not here to discuss earthly politics with you this morning. I certainly don't want to do that at church or in a sermon. But I do want to talk about politics. The politics I want to discuss with you are the politics of Jesus. And when you think about politics, my friends, what do you think of? What comes to mind? Maybe the first place your mind goes to is campaigning. That's certainly where mine goes to, right? And that's a part of it. Maybe your mind goes to issues that need to be addressed or certain people you think should or shouldn't be in office. But politics at its core is about the governance of people. It's about power and status. It's about the total complex relations between people living in society. And yes, if you can believe it, there are politics concerning Jesus. 
Now, each one and every one of us have our own opinions when it comes to earthly politics. But we're going to get to a question that Jesus poses us to us today. And I'm not sure how you're going to answer that. But I want you to think about it. So here we are. We're going to walk with the disciples today. And I want to imagine that you're with a group of disciples and you're standing in no other place than Caesarea Philippi. This great city built by Philip. The city that's a cultural crossroads and a religious crossroads. And you're standing here and you're taking it all in and you're looking up at these temples that they have built to the Syrian gods. And you're looking at it around and you see this marvelous white marble temple that was built by Herod the Great gleaming in the sun. And you're staring at all these monstrosities of things built to people. And of course, then you're amidst and embroiled in the politics of Caesar himself, which almost is, you know, a cult-like worship. So you're standing here amidst this crossroads with all the world religions on display, taking it all in when Jesus snaps you back to attention with this question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Right? Bring your, bring your, your focus back in. You're taking all this in, and Jesus comes right out with this question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, the questions come out of Jesus like, he's on, like we're on his campaign committee, like he's pulling us all of a sudden. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? How do you respond? Well, for the disciples, the response is kind of like mine was back in high school. I start naming names, right? Uh, some people say it's John the Baptist, and other people say it's Jeremiah. And other people say it's Elijah or some of the other prophets. All these names come flying out because that's where our, our, our minds go to. And here in Caesarea Philippi, with all of the religions on this display, Jesus asked some of his most impressing and important questions. Is he campaigning when he asks this particular question? Why do the disciples answer the way that they do? It would seem Jesus may be campaigning, but what he's really looking forward to and trying to find out is if people recognize who, you know, who he's come to be. He wants to see if people recognize him as the Son of Man. It may seem Jesus may be campaigning, but he's, he's looking to see for that faith to be growing, to recognize who he is. And given the responses of the disciples, the opinion of the people that the Son of Man is one of the names that the disciples have mentioned. You see, these people are still stuck in their own ideas of who the Son of Man is, of how a Savior will be a king who vanquishes their enemies the way they expect them to. And to them, it's more of an earthly political response, but not to Jesus. Not according to the politics of God, because what does Jesus follow it up with? The most important question ever. But who do you say I am? But who do you say I am? Jesus asked this question, and notice who answers this question. Of all people standing there with the disciples, none other than Simon Peter. The same Simon Peter who, a few chapters earlier, whose faith faltered and he went sinking like a rock in the ocean when he saw Jesus walking on the water. And what does Simon Peter say? You. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Not just the Son of the God, but the Son of the living God. Why does Peter answer this way? 
Why now, after his faith falters so often, does Peter finally have the faith to say that you are the Christ, that you are the Savior? Perhaps that moment out on the sea when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water, when they were being battered by the wind and the waves right amidst the storm, perhaps that was the moment that was a game changer for Jesus and for the disciples because from that moment on, they would go on to claim that Jesus was the Son of the living God, that he was the Savior, the Christ. And maybe that's part of it. But the other part of it is that God revealed this to Peter. God revealed in this moment to Peter what to say. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It was God who taught, who, who showed him what to do and how to say it. You know, God reveals his ways to his people in his time and in his own methods. Sometimes it doesn't happen the way we expect it to happen. But that's God. That's God. And then for emphasis, Peter calls Jesus the son of the living God. Kind of ironically, or maybe not, as they're standing here amidst all these false gods, he calls him the son of the living God to point out that, hey, you're the true living God. Not, not all these temples that are out here. Not all these things that man puts their hope in. Not all these things that man votes for. No, you. You're the son of the living God. And that takes faith. In this moment, Peter's faith shines. It emerges greatly. Though, to be honest, it'll be short-lived. Because in the coming weeks in our lectionary, we're going to find out how much more Peter's faith falters. But apparently in that moment, it, it excelled. Apparently, he didn't understand, though, when Jesus commended him and spoke to him about the rock upon which the church would be built, what this meant about Jesus' politics, about being his follower. But it isn't Peter himself that Jesus is talking about building his church upon, is it? It's not like Jesus said, Peter, it's you I'm going to build it on, you yourself, your physical self. No. Jesus is talking about that faith that caused Peter to confess who Christ is. That's what Jesus is going to build his church upon. That's what it's going to be based upon. Faith. A faith that will cause us to confess who Christ is as well. It'll be built upon that very confession. And then Jesus expounds to Peter about the building of the church, and the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And he's making, in this moment in time, a campaign promise. A campaign promise. You see, the politics of Jesus are different than the politics of man, and that they're not tainted with a temptation of self-serving gain or the potential of promises that can't be delivered. No, Jesus' politics are about the greater good, about the governance of God's policy of salvation and redemption. Jesus' politics are about getting people to buy into that plan of redemption, of restoration, knowing his methods. His methods of campaigning are not just spoken words. They're not lip service, but they're actions. When Jesus speaks, my friends, it's the truth. When he says something, he does something. He shows what his campaign promise of salvation looks like in real time. As he heals the lame and the sick, and as he raises the presumed dead, and 
as he feeds thousands with five to seven loaves of bread and a couple of three fish. But it takes faith to see this and to know this and to believe this campaign promise. A faith that's established and, quite honestly, nurtured by God alone. And look at what Jesus' campaign promise entails. It entails that Christ himself will build the church. That is the gathering of believers based on faith. Uh, It's Christ who gives the keys to the kingdom of heaven, the office and the power that binds and loosens. It's Christ that gives the promise that the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. Meaning the church that is so founded through faith by Christ and established in faith that death will never overcome it. What a promise. Who wouldn't want to buy into that? That's the easy part, though. Now comes the not-so-easy part. Campaigning for Christ. Rooting ourselves in the politics of Christ so that we firmly grasp our Christian beliefs and take them beyond just a verbal confession. So that when we confess in our creeds and when we confess to people who God, who is, who Christ is to us, that it's not just mere words, but it's an action that follows. An action that models what Christ has modeled for us. Actions are more powerful than words. How do you get somebody to buy into Christ? Well, first, we got to remember that it's God that does the work, not us. We're just the sowers. God's the one that develops and creates and nurtures the faith. And it's not just enough to confess to someone that we believe that Christ is our Savior. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had a hard time confessing who Christ is to somebody? Have you ever had to write a faith statement and struggled greatly to write what God means to you? Why is that? Why is it that some people can stand here and confess in the confession uh, and the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed or the Athanasian Creed or, you know, whatever, uh, who God is, but has a hard time living it out, has a hard time really describing and getting down like I did with the presidency back in my high school days? Why is that? Why is it a struggle? Perhaps it's a struggle to live that out, to do those things, because honestly, if we're self-reflecting, maybe it comes down to that we just don't spend enough time in God's Word where He nurtures us. Maybe we don't spend enough time in worship or in fellowship with like-minded Christians. Maybe we're voting for the wrong thing in the world and not putting and electing Christ you know, as our Savior. Maybe that's why we struggle so often to confess who the Christ is. But you know, if you think in terms of politics and how people identify with one party or another, the same is true as a Christian. Who are we voting for? Who are we putting our identity? Who who are we claiming that gives us an identity? It should be the Christian party. It should be God's party. We should show people that we are who we say we are. I don't know if you've ever heard of this artist, but there was a, an 1800s artist named Paul Gustave Doré who was traveling throughout Eastern Europe and he lost his passport. Have you ever done that or misplaced it? That's a scary moment, right? Because there's your identity. Well, he came to a border crossing and he explained to the border guards his predicament and gave his last name, hoping that they would recognize him as the famous painter who he said he was. 
And the border guards, of course, said, you know, there's a lot of people who try to cross these borders by saying there's somebody famous, and we don't let them through. Prove to us that you are who you say you are. If you're a famous artist, take this pencil and this paper, and I want you to draw this scene of these peasants over here. Well, Dore did it so, so quickly and so skillfully and handed it back to him in such a manner that the scene was so vivid that it was happening in real time on that paper that the guards couldn't believe it. And they believed that he said who he said he was. In other words, Dory's works confirmed his identity. And they let him through. And thus it is with being a Christian. Campaigning for Christ entails not only our words, but our actions as well. It's our faith rooted in the politics of Christ that stirs us in action that causes a mother of two to adopt a son later in life, to bring him to the baptismal font, which is going to happen at the 11 o'clock service today. It's something, you know, that faith that causes church members to give their time so freely, to, to serve people in the manna pantry, to go out and to help people clean their houses because there's people in need. There's, it's that faith of that causes somebody to pick somebody up and take them to the grocery store because they have no means or take them to church because they have no means of worship. That's a faith that's rooted in the politics of Christ. And so I ask you, who are you campaigning for today? Jesus' question to those disciples rings out to us today, right here, right now. Who do people say the Son of Man is? But the more important question that he asks is, who do you say that I am? So who do you say that Jesus is? We can confess with, Jesus, with Peter today that Jesus is the Messiah. Oh, and that may seem subtle and simple, may even seem like a canned answer. But when we confess that statement through our actions, not just here in worship, but beyond the borders of this church property, when we can go out and confess that through our actions by caring for other people, then we confess that Jesus is the Messiah. And that speaks louder than any word could ever speak. And there is no greater campaign, my friends, than the campaign for Christ. Who do you say Jesus is? To God be all the glory. Amen.